Well, Shabbat Shalom once again. We are, as we go through the Trey Asar, the 12 minor prophets, as we go through the Trey Asar, we are now in the book, book of Yonah, Jonah, as we say in English, and we are actually in Yonah chapter 2. Now, Yonah chapter 2 in the Hebrew starts at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. That, that 17th verse is actually the first verse of Jonah chapter 2. And we're going to stay fairly close to our text this morning as we tell the story of Jonah, the son of Amittai, this man from Gath-Hefer, in between the Galil, or the Canaret, and the Mediterranean Sea. And there he is from this fairly remote northern town, not particularly a special place, not a place that everybody knew about. And Yonah is going to be given a charge by Hashem, by the Almighty God, to bring a message to a city that he hated, that his people hated. And Jonah has, of course, said, no, I will not go. This is where we pick up the story this morning in Yonah chapter 2. Because Yonah has faced the justice of God. And now he is going to have, we could say, if I may, may uh, use a pun, a very sinking feeling. He is going to go into the depths. And we read in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, or in your English Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the Hebrew uses the word gadol, and, and gadol, dag gadol, fish, a great one, uh, this fish is great, but it doesn't say necessarily in the book of Yonah whether this is a great fish in terms of size or in terms of age. And in fact, there is a Jewish tradition that says maybe this fish was created during creation itself as God prepared for what he knew would be Jonah's uh, fate. I don't know if that's true, and I think the natural implication is that this is a large fish. Maybe not such a large fish as we see in VeggieTales, in the VeggieTales movie where Yonah is inside the fish and alongside him are also some large wrecked ships. And on those ships are choirs of people who sing along with him. Um, it's not necessarily that large. This was actually the first movie my son ever saw. We were on tour with uh, preaching in a number of churches in Texas, and we decided to visit a, a uh, local cinema, and we saw VeggieTales, the movie. But it wasn't necessarily such a large, large fish. But it was large enough that Yonah was swallowed up. It wasn't necessarily a whale. Many people assume it was a whale, and 
if you imagine maybe a sperm whale or something like that that might have found its way into the Mediterranean Sea, perhaps that is possible. But the scripture simply says that Hashem created or prepared a dog gadol. He created a very, very large fish. It was great. Maybe it was great because it was also the fish that the Lord had prepared and that it had a great role to play in the history of Jonah's life and of Israel and of the world. Here is this fish. And Jonah has fallen into the depths. And he has been swallowed by this fish. And we could be distracted maybe by the mechanics of it all. We could be distracted about uh, how could someone actually survive inside of a fish? How could a fish be so large? But that would actually take us away from the point. The Lord is great. He could have made it a small fish and Yonah could have been shrunk to, to fit inside a small fish. There's a, another story, which I think maybe should be taken as Haggadah, just a story, that when everyone arrived at the temple on Yom Kippur every year, despite the limited size of the temple compound, they all had room to bow down. They all had room to say their personal confessions without the person next to them hearing. The tale at least makes it clear that God is not limited to size. God is not limited to our normal human dimensions. God made this happen. The Lord prepared a great swish to fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah or Jonah, was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, last week, one of our sisters here uh, reminded me of Matityahu, where we read in Matityahu chapter 15 and verse 39 about Yeshua, who was like the fish, given... Um, going to be buried for three days and three nights. He was also going to give in his own burial and resurrection this very sign of Yonah. Matityahu or Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 15 and verse 39. And very interestingly, when you look at the text, here... Matityahu tells us exactly where Yeshua is. Yeshua came away from a multitude. He had just broken bread for thousands, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Magdala is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. It is close, relatively close, maybe 20 kilometers, so you could walk it in a day, to the city of Gat-Hefer, where Yonah lived. And where Yonah, according to tra tradition, as we saw last week, had his tomb. People in that area knew about the prophet that had arisen from their region. 
Today, you can go to that region and you will see the tombs of rabbis. And people are aware that the great rabbis of the first, second, third, and fourth centuries, the compilers of the Mishnah, the Tanaim, some of them, are buried in tombs in their region. How would it have been any different in that day when there were no competitors, no rabbis to compete in fame with Yonah? People would have known Yonah was close by. And so Yeshua is in the region of Magdala. He is relatively close to where Yonah's tomb is, no doubt a place of interest. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came in Matityahu 16 and verse 1. Or as in, in Hebrew, the Parashim and the Tzadokim came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that must have got them thinking, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, Jonah was buried, as it were, in the belly of a whale for three days, and he came back, as it were, from the dead. And so, this is the situation of Jonah. And as we look at Jonah chapter 2, we see two basic parts in this chapter. The first part is to do with the descent of Jonah and what happens as he descends into the depths of the sea. The Mediterranean is a mighty ocean. It is, it is uh, if you're in the middle of it, you don't see land from any, in any direction. Sometimes we might, from our perspective here in North America, compare it to the Atlantic or the Pacific. But the Mediterranean is a great ocean. And so, here he sinks into the depths of this limitless sea. And we see this in verse 2. What does it do? There is no possibility of survival. We don't know if he treaded water for a little while, but the implication is that he sank right down. Why would a man from a place like Gath-Hefer far from any serious body of water, have had any clue how to, how to swim. And so there he sinks, and he ends up in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And what does it do? He has this sinking feeling, as I have already suggested. He has come to terms with the fact that his fate is sealed. He does not expect to survive. He doesn't have any hope of survival. This is it. He has reached that point. And if I might make an aside, sometimes we have hope that people that we know 
have come to the end of their lives, and at the end of the lives, their lives, sometimes we hope, and maybe it is the case in some cases, that people, when they have come to the point where they know that it is all over, just like Jonah, who could not pray to God while he was in the midst of this ship that was clearly going to sink, he could not turn to God because of the shame within his heart while death was imminent. When he thought that it was upon him, at that point, he prayed. And this is his prayer out of the ship's belly. He's made it into poetry. So obviously these weren't his exact words at the moment as he thought he was dying. But they are the words of Jonah. Nevertheless, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And here we see right away, Jonah is writing down what his prayer is and what it was. And we see the poetry in it. We see the parallelism that we see so often in Tehillim, the book of Psalms, and elsewhere. I cried to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And the parallel there teaches us something. It's not simply a rhetorical device. It's not some, simply, as in the Psalms, simply something to make it more interesting. But it teaches us about what it, he was going through. It gives us a more rounded picture than we might have if we just had simple statements of what was happening to him. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Parallels with out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. So here he is. He realizes his life is at an end. He is counting it all as over. And as he counts it all as over, Now he is turning to the Lord. Now he is realizing there is an eternity. We see in verse verse 4, or verse 5 in the Hebrew, Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. He realizes as, maybe as he is losing consciousness, as, as he is running out of breath, that there is an eternity. There is a God who needs to be worshipped and a God who needs to be adored. And he turns 
towards the Lord. He is crying out for help. He is crying out to the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Verse 2 or 3 in the Hebrew. You heard my voice. Sometimes we get to that point. Where finally. We are able to turn to the Lord. Where finally, after all the distress we have been through, all of the rebellion that we have been through, and, and sometimes our rebellion doesn't need to be as, as stark and pronounced as Jonah, who specifically did what he could to get away from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we rebel even in little ways. And s- and we get to that point when we know it's over. This cannot go on. And that is when the Lord hears us. We reach, as some people call it, um, the end of ourselves. We reach rock bottom. We reach that point when we realize we have to turn around. And whatever it is in our lives that needs to be corrected, and changed. And here is Jonah. He has come to that point. And where is God? Saying, you know, I've had it with you. Now you pray to me? That might be my response in that place. Uh, that would be a very human response. You know, you've, you've buttered your bread. Uh, this is the way you eat it. Um, you, you know, you You've made your own bed. Now you lie in it. But that's not what God's response is at all. God's response here is to answer. God's response is to hear Jonah's voice. It should give us tremendous hope that God is the God not just of second chances, as some people, in my view, tritely say, not just the God of second chances. God is the one who hears those who call upon him in their distress. God is the God who hears those who have no right to be heard. And that might give us some comfort because sometimes we know we have no right to be heard. But God is the God who is willing to hear. When he sees genuine repentance, a genuine turning to him, then he responds. The Lord hears his voice. In verse 4 or 5, we see that he has been hurled, as it were, cast in out of the sight of God. That was his situation. Not just cast out of this, the ship. Not just cast into the sea. But cast out of the sight of God. And while he has been cast out of the sight of God, and this is the beauty of this, this form of Hebrew parallelism, he's out of the sight of God, but now he can see the holy temple. God has given him that prospect. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
And we might be in that situation where the consequences of our sin, the consequences of our actions have come upon us, and we're feeling their full weight. And we know we've been cast out, but there is hope. He looks again toward God's holy temple. There is always hope for those who in the midst of their distance from God nevertheless turn towards him and trust in him. I will look again toward your holy temple. Jerusalem and the holy temple have always been the place where our people have turned. I'm very pleased that this building that we use every Shabbat, that this chapel faces east. And as we face east, we are facing the city of Jerusalem. We are facing Zion. It is a wonderful blessing to face Zion as we pray. The city that means so much. And why does it mean so much? Because the name of God is there. God has set his name there. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 23 that this is the place where the name of God resides. Deuteronomy 14 In verse 23, the children of Israel who have just been told in verse 2 that you are a holy people to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, are now told in verse 23, you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. And so the people are turning towards Jerusalem today just as Jonah, the prophet, set his eyes on Zion and the holy temple so long ago. He knew where the name of God was. He lived in the northern kingdom. He, he could have been one of those who worshipped in Bethel or, or in Samaria at those false temples. But he knew where the name of God was. And that is the one that he turned to. What a picture of our Savior. Because now at this point, we are reminded, as Jonah speaks about his banishment from the Lord and the fact that he, he is experiencing the full consequences of his sin which have alienated him from God, and at that point that he turns to God and he hears God, we see this amazing contrast with Messiah, our Savior. In Psalm 22, these are the words that Yeshua used. And we see these very words used in Matityahu chapter chapter 27 and verse 46 and Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. Eli, Eli, lama azavtani. Yeshua said it in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama savachtani. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here is one of the more significant connections between Yonah and Yeshua. Yonah was not only buried in the belly of the whale, but just as Yonah was separated from the living as a consequence for his sin, so Yeshua was separated from the living God through life because of our sins that were laid upon him. The parallel is clear and it is powerful. Yonah is experiencing a judgment that, as far as he knows, cannot be changed. We see this in verse verses 5 and 6, where the waters surrounded him, even to his soul, his nephesh. The deep closed around him. The weeds were wrapped around his head. He was entangled in weeds as he went down. We read in, in verse 6, he went down to the moorings of the mountain. He was sinking like a stone to the bottom of the sea. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. That was his situation. It was something maybe that we can relate to, but hopefully we can also relate to what happened to him, that the Lord his God brought up his life from the pit, just as Yeshua was raised from the dead. Yes, you have brought up my life from the pit. So the Lord, we see, heard his voice, answered him, and raised up his life from the pit. And he says, O Lord, my God. He says this also in verse 1. He prayed to the Lord, his God. Here we see to, here we see the two names of God. One is his proper name, which we say now as Hashem, O Lord, and my God, or his God, in chapter 2, verse 1, at the beginning of this chapter in the English version. He cries out. And this represents both the mercy of God and his justice. He is crying out to one who is not only just, but is also merciful. And so let's continue in verse 7, in the English verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Now Yonah is not only one who has descended, but there is something with him, within him, that is ascending. His prayer is going up to the Almighty God. My soul fainted within me. I remembered the Lord. And we see that there are a number of things that happen now in verses 7, 8, and 9 that are symptoms of the change that has taken place in his heart. 
First of all, his soul fainted. He did come to the end of himself. But then he remembered the Lord. Sometimes when we are in sin, when there is sin in our lives, we find ourselves being torn further and further away from the Lord that we love. The Brit Hadashah says it quite clearly, as Rav Shaul says, the flesh wars against the spirit. It is very hard to have a vibrant life with the Almighty God when we are struggling with sin in our hearts and in our lives. We come to that point where our souls faint within us. Our faith becomes weak. We find ourselves doubting, and doubt is not a bad thing, but we find ourselves doubting and ending up on the side of unbelief because we have not been walking with the Lord. We have not been um, nurturing our relationship with him. But now, Yonah remembers. Now, he remembers the way it used to be. You might remember that Keith Green song, uh, which, which speaks of the Lord bringing back into flame his love for him. Remembrance of the Lord brings hope. Remembrance also brings prayer. Because as he remembers, this is another aspect of his repentance, his teshuvah. He's already told us that as he went down, he prayed. But now we see him re-encapsulating everything that was happening. My prayer went up to you. My prayer went to your holy temple. This holy temple that the Jewish people in his day and later on and always have cared about so much is now the place where he directs his prayer. He knows that there is a God in heaven. He knows that even though he has gone as far as he can, even though he is in the depths of the sea, as the psalmist said, even in the depths of the sea, you are there. He knows that he can cry out to God. God is in his holy temple. But Yonah is far from being one who thinks that God is not everywhere. He knows the place where God's name is. But he knows that God is the God of the heavens and the earth. As an aside, he says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. It's a warning to us. There are many people who put their hope in various things in the world. There are people today who are still worshipping idols. There are people today who are worshipping false gods and gods of their own imaginations. But if they do so, they are forsaking their own mercy. Because mercy is from the Almighty God. And mercy comes when our Almighty God looks at the one who was like Jonah, who went and who was buried and who rose again from the dead. When, when that Almighty God looks at him and gives mercy 
to those of us who put our faith in him. And so Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you. This is his pledge because now he is having hope. Now he sees that the Lord is saving his life. He is in the belly of this whale. He can see it is miraculous. He is surviving. And he says, the Lord has a purpose in this. What is the ultimate purpose in his life? He knows. Just as the old uh, catechism says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to love God and to, to uh, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So Jonah knows glorifying God, sacrificing to God is an important sacrifice that he can make. His sacrifice will be with the voice of thanksgiving. He not only makes his sacrifice, but he thanks the Lord as he does so. He rejoices in him, and he knows that he will be able to thank the Lord for what he has done. Not only does he give thanks, but we see that there is a commitment. I will pay what I have vowed. Remember the sailors after they threw Jonah overboard and the seas were calm, they vowed to the Lord. Jonah, too, is making vows. He is going to pay what he has vowed. And we know quite clearly what that is. He is one who has committed his life as a prophet to speak the words of God as God has directed him to do so. And God has sent him to Nineveh. And Jonah has said no. Jonah chose to break his vows as a prophet. But now he says, I will pay what I have vowed. He is going to obey the Almighty God. Salvation is of the Lord. And here he's thinking not only of his salvation, but no doubt of the possibility, maybe the Ninevites will repent. And maybe they too will experience salvation. And so we read in verse 10, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. What a joy that must have been for him. And how surreal to find himself on dry land. He had gone to Yapa south of what is today Tel Aviv, as far as he could get to get away from the Lord. He had gone on a boat, and he was in the middle of the Mediterranean, and now he was back on dry land. Now he had a new chance, and it reminds us of how we, too, have new chances when the Lord intervenes in our lives, when the Lord speaks into our lives. Because God is a God who hears us at those low points. He is a God who answers, who wants to hear. And he is God who wants to give us that opportunity to serve him. Sometimes we look at the mistakes we've made in life and we think, well, what is God going to do with me now? You know, am I all washed up? Well, Jonah was washed up. 
And he came to that point where he could once again serve the living God. And so let's take that message for ourselves and also for our world out there that is so far from God, but can still maybe hear his voice if we make him known. Avinu Shava Shamayim. We thank you for your son Yeshua, who like Yonah was buried in the belly of the earth, in his case. Father, we thank you that you heard his voice. And we thank you that on the basis of, of his sacrifice for us, him the perfect sacrifice who bore not his own sins but ours into the pit. We thank you that because of that, we can, like he was raised, also be raised ourselves. Father, we pray that just as Yeshua was raised to do a great work, to sit at your right hand and intercede for us, so for for us in all of our weaknesses as we turn to you and as we turn away from those sins that entangle us and encumber us, we pray, Lord, that you might use us mightily for your glory and that those commissions and those assignments that you have given to us, that we might actually be used of you in a great way to fulfill them and to bring great glory to your name. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.